0: Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best.
1: It's the Hoop Collective, Wednesday edition. I'm Kevin Arnovitz in Los Angeles. Alex Spiro's in New York. He is an NBA attorney. Alex, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, first of all, what is an NBA attorney? I don't know if that's a thing, but I guess it's an attorney that's been in and around the league a little bit and is a big basketball fan. If that's what okay. it is, then then I can be that.
1: We will get to your specific function um, later. I, I, we're going to start with the Celtics just because... Generally speaking, you and I have lots of conversations about a lot of serious topics. um you're You're a wonderful person to talk about league issues with. But really, when it comes down to it, I get texts at like four in the morning, Pacific coast time uh, about like the Boston Celtics. And that is generally how my correspondences with you start. Were you surprised after Hayward went down?
0: Yeah, I'm glad everybody knows what time I start talking and thinking about the Celtics in the morning. But, you know, you know. The bottom line is great organization, great coach, and they have players. And you know, they lost one, and they built around that. And you know, I like all the pieces—the big ones and the small ones—and they fit together well. And I think it's giving uh, the younger guys a chance to play. And I, I think he's going to be back, and they're going to be stronger than ever. Um, but you know, defense is really about coaching and effort, and you can see that in Boston. I, the thing that is surprising to me—and it shouldn't be
1: surprising because I think generally speaking there's enough evidence that you can take guys who are perceived as subpar defenders and turn them into effective defenders or essentially have them conform to a system that works, that minimizes their weaknesses. And if you had told me that Kyrie Irving was going to be the starting point guard on the league's stingiest defense at the beginning of the season, I I, I really thought they took a hit. I was okay with the Irving trade. I think to myself I kind of said, "All right, but they've they probably forfeited a good deal of defensive efficiencies. Maybe they make it up because they have, you know, they have a stretchier team now. They have guys who can actually create off the dribble um, with, with Thomas gone. But at the end of the day, how there's a ceiling to this team's defensive capability, and I've been
0: proven wrong. I mean, listen, Kyrie is an incredible athlete, and I don't mean in the sort of jump out of the gym kind of way, but he gets the flow of sports. You could put him into anything or anywhere. Like if you took all the NBA players and like had them play a pickup game when they were all like 50 or 60, Kyrie would still score anytime he wanted. And that's yeah, but that's not the instinct, question, right? Like, but no, but that. he knows exactly where to be once he was coached. And now that he's committed and now that he's the number one option, he knows exactly where to be, and he has a great feel. And Stevens coaches a great defense, and and sort of in the second layer of players, they do have young athletic wings. And Horford always wears who knows where to go to, and they become a solid unit.
1: So tell our listeners what you do. I, I I called it an NBA attorney up top, but functionally, what is it that you do professionally?
0: So I'm I'm just an attorney, like. Uh, Many, many others, but obviously through a series of cases and situations in and around the league, you know, you could say I've been integrated a bit into sort of the day-to-day of many of the teams and many of the players and and perhaps the Players Association of the League more globally, but, you know, it started off by representing individual players and it's become, you know, I like to think a little bit more than that, Um, and hopefully I'll continue to do that for some time.
1: Yeah, I, I met you first through the uh case and uh, Perantich.
0: Right. I mean, that's that's one that certainly had uh, a higher profile and a, a public forum. Obviously, the vast majority of what you do, if you sit in my seat, is sort of navigate legal situations, uh, situations that involve you know provisions of the league, team rules, the media, and all the different sort of avenues within which, you know, a player can find themselves in trouble. And then, you know, even better when uh, you get to know some of the guys and you see all the things they're working on that can be aided by, you know, having somebody to advise and point in the right direction. And, you know, good things can come from that too. So it's not just dealing with crises, but obviously that's a major part of it. When the Cephalosha case,
1: when the incident happened in 2015, it was so interesting because – there were so many components of uh, issues in the zeitgeist that that came to fruition in that particular moment. I mean, Ta- Tabo's a professional athlete with fame. Um, he's of African descent, but he's also an immigrant. Uh, it, it was an incident of, of police brutality.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so what I would say is, you know, I wasn't surprised to read that Tabo you know, saved somebody in a raft when he was in Utah. I mean, there's something about him that allowed him to have this kind of fight. Um, but he turned down a dismissal deal and took the case to trial and it sort of played out in a public forum. And, you know, there, there's an awesome responsibility when you're a public figure, especially when you're uh, in a public figure in this day and age when there's so much attention on race and social justice issues and for good reasons. And, um, you know, he stood up uh, for something and I think it stood for something far greater than an individual case. And, you know, i um, sort of have, uh, you know, respect and lifelong friendship with him because of it.
1: It was a fascinating case. And, um, it's something I've talked about with you is that particular corner of 10th Ave and, and 17th Street, in the Meatpacking District of Manhattan, it, it, it's invariably at some point during a sports season, you will read of an incident and it will have occurred at that corner. And it is an incredible diorama when you go there late at night, right? Like it's it's these, it, these very, you know, One Oak, obviously, the club outside which that incident occurred, Avenue is there. Um, you have this entire ecosystem of... They're rich hedge fund guys who go to these clubs. They're the professional athletes uh, on a nightly basis who will be there. You've got the bachelorette parties. Um, you have True, uh, th- this homeless man who, who essentially is the mayor of the corner and was actually, I think, what a key witness in the Tabo Civil case. It, it, is, it is kind of a fascinating laboratory just to observe all these dynamics.
0: Yeah, there's exciting things going on and a lot of uh, pitfalls. And you know, for every case you read about there's you know several incidents that occur that luckily and fortunately for the people involved don't end up making headlines. but that area is one that obviously players and high flying businessmen and many other people visit and frequent and uh it's got lots of fun but lots of trouble too um, but you're right it does it is kind of sort of a microcosm of the diversity of new york and and all of these moving parts coming together um, and it can lead to it can lead to problems
1: so if a team had you come to training camp and maybe this has even happened I, I don't know but if a, if a team had you come to training camp and said, "Look Alex, you, you've represented a lot of guys in incidents um, will you speak this is a young roster, will you stand up and speak for 10 minutes on the do's and don'ts of, of NBA nightlife?" what to do with sure
0: sure and i have given that speech by the way but but i mean here's here's the point um i I try to make a few macro suggestions up front which is everything that you say and do in life pretend like it's being recorded pretend like it's on video what is on Uh, video and it is being recorded at this point right there you go so it's not just a metaphor it's it's a reality you know and then in the sort of the practical i think you you know you need a driver And you need to not be waiting out front of places where there's chances for confrontations and for, for unknowns and uncertainties. Um, There's team security. The NBA provides folks and there's personalized security and there's other people that can go with you. You know, the old adage, nothing good happens after midnight, you know, but the problem is for these guys, by the time the the game ends, you know, the happy hour becomes midnight. And, you know, I don't want to be the voice that says you can't be 21 or you can't, Sort of when you're in one of the the more exciting cities, see what's out there because that then restricts you and it you know pents you up and that's not good for anybody either. So that's that's always one of those things
1: that I've 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 always taken umbrage of when when a you know a fan or whoever says yeah what were they doing out? And my argument is literally the uh, their clock they clock out at at 10:45 p.m. That is that is their 6 p.m. If one leaves right. work at six p m, right? like that and they they're pretty
0: revved up. They're not working desk jobs. I mean, it's hard right. to just kind of crash. And they by the way, they haven't eaten. and
1: right. so so the the notion that uh, that an athlete is somehow looking for trouble at one thirty a m you know a- after a game that, that essentially lets out at ten forty five uh, it doesn't hold water for me.
0: Yeah, they're not looking for trouble. They're looking for fun. Other people might be looking for trouble, but they really don't go out. They have let out whatever aggression or whatever that anybody has on the court. They're looking to relax and have fun. It's just, you know, they're entering a world in which they interact with people differently, perhaps, than you or I interact with people. You know, people come up to you that you don't know why, and they interact differently. They just yell at you, or they say things to you as if you were you know, not a regular person with regular reactions. And so everything is thrown off psychologically by that sort of strange position that they have. You know, the NBA players are far more famous and more noticeable than any other kind of celebrity because of their size and everything else. And it just creates a strange dynamic that can go wrong.
1: It's sort of an extension of social media. I think one of the pitfalls of social media, particularly Twitter, is this idea that people don't interact with each other the way they would in a physical setting. Right? They, they, they say things they wouldn't say. They represent themselves in a way they wouldn't represent. They, uh, they'll they issue threats in a way they never would in everyday life. And in some ways, I feel like the professional athlete and maybe more broadly the famous person has to kind of live that every day. Like they, they are actually in animated Twitter even when they're out at a club, even when they're out at a restaurant. Like they are in a situation where those on the other side will say things, do things, react, taunt in a way they never would with – a regular schmo.
0: Yep. It's Twitter, Twitter infused with alcohol as uh, leads to a, a strange mess. You've dealt with, I mean, you're often on the phone with the top
1: brass of NBA organizations the morning after an incident, if not sooner. And it, it, it dawns on me, you have a really interesting vantage point by which to or, to kind of observe well-run NBA organizations versus poorly run NBA organizations. And be, because you're seeing the way they respond to an emergency situation, you're seeing the way they delegate Leadership. I'd love to hear a little bit about that, and uh, I, I know you can't cite specific organizations as being good or bad, or maybe you can.
0: But I think I could cite some of the positive ones. Maybe we all leave right. out so the who,
1: the less who are some NBA organizations that that have their crap together
0: when it goes. Through. Well, well. Before we get to the, the the who's who list, I would just simply say that you know, when dealing with a crisis, you, you, you sort of you don't want to blame a person for the way they react. You know, on on everybody's worst day, they may not be themselves. And, you know, some people, it takes them a minute to get through something and then they rise up. But an organization, a corporation, should, you know, one would think, have enough systems in place in which um, they can react and respond. And, you know, NBA teams are run by and large, very, very well by very smart people and accomplished people in other forums that are running a business um, and a business that's in the public eye, and so they have great responsibility. Lots of people following them, and you know, o- almost exclusively, do the right thing and handle situations the right way. I mean, you can talk about you know the Hawks since we've talked about Tabo and that situation was well known, but you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Bud and for the other folks in that organization. And then, you know, uh, absolutely here in New York, you know, the Nets are a top-flight organization. You know, Boston, you know, my hometown, you know, those guys are the best. And you see the way that they care about the players, the way they rally together and protect one another, and the way they handle things not just the smart way but the right way. And it's it, it, it sort of impresses you as a fan and, and as somebody who is in and around business as well.
1: What are the particular qualities, though, uh, of a good organization? I, I write a lot about this. I, I try to address a lot of these, these questions, sort of organizational management theory and culture. I mean, what, what are the do's?
0: Um, or for that matter, what are the
1: don'ts? Like the well, ones that I have mean, failed and you're yeah. not going to mention them, why have they failed?
0: So, so one thing that I sort of preach is that everybody should sort of stay in their own lane uh, a little bit. I'm not going to tell somebody whether to ice or put heat on their ankle and uh, wouldn't presume to. And I think everybody should understand everybody's given role and not be afraid to seek outside advice. If you don't seek out advice, sometimes you clam up and you do something regrettable or you, you know, you see it in the corporate setting all the time. You delete an email, you tell a white lie um, or you just rely on the advice of someone else who's in and around the league who may not know what they're talking about. Um, I also think you have to, going into a crisis, have a team mentality that truly is that, a team. Everybody sort of has to care about each other and sort of build together. If you have a well-knit organization, then you don't get locker room leaks and you don't get undercutting and you don't get all these other things that then phrase everybody and then nobody knows who to trust or what to do. And that really takes an organization down from the inside. And I think you need to uh, have self-reflection. I think you need to... Uh, if there is an incident when you know a coach says, "Yeah, you guys can go out tonight or no we don 't want to leave town tonight," or you know someone on the team isn 't being treated perfectly or is having an issue that 's not being addressed uh, aggressively on the front end, and then something goes wrong it 's not to sort of say well it 's their fault or I told you so, or you know everybody kind of has to look at themselves and say, "What well, could I have done differently, and how should we deal with this the next time and what what lessons are to be learned from this?" And then, you know, mistakes aren't repeated.
1: You have an intimate view uh, of both the professional and personal lives of players. I mean, just by they're your clients. You, you probably know the rhythms of their life better than, I mean, certainly, I think, better than the people in the media. And uh, for that matter, even better than uh, certain staffs. Uh, if you were the head of the players' union for a day or a week or a month or whatever, what, what would you be your biggest priorities? I mean, where where are players not being well served by the league in general?
0: So, I mean, just at the outset, and I don't just say this to say it, I think that the Players Association the league are phenomenally run, and I couldn't do it one lick better. I would say that, you know, I do worry that there is such a time commitment. Um, and listen, it's the same for anyone's job. But the difference between, say, your job or my job and, and somebody whose job is primarily in their 20s and early 30s, is there has to be a transition afterwards. And if you're so busy during those years, and, you know, we can say all we want that, you know, teenage years are formative, but, you know, uh, you know, this stuff doesn't start really till you're 30 maybe for most people. If, if you don't have enough time uh, that you can explore other things and meet the kind of people that you'd want to meet if you're playing in New York or Boston or any other major city, or any other place, then then you really can't fully develop, and can't begin to plan for life after, and can't um, transition in a way that that keeps you you know psychologically sound and happy. And so I, I do wish that they are, they had enough time to really do things outside of basketball and the team commitments and the sports commitments, which are very very important. And, you know, I'm thankful so much commitment has been given to social justice issues and things along those lines. I cannot tell you how important that is. But at the same time, people are so worn out after the season that they want to go down to their boats and just fish and, you know, really, really sort of veg out. And then they never have a time that's quiet enough to sort of learn and develop in other ways. And, you know, the guys really... So many of them are so smart, such savvy businessmen already, and they, they want to do that in, in life after basketball, and I hope that they have enough time that they can position themselves to do that. I mean, this is interesting.
1: What I hear you saying is, is the core curriculum as the season is currently constituted is so burdensome. I don't say burdensome, but, but it, it's a huge commitment that there isn't really a time left over for electives. To, to kind of have these extracurriculars that a player needs in order to be able to pivot after life uh, or after life a basketball life exactly exactly This is an interesting question for you as, as uh, you know, fantasy um, PA head is, you know, the circumstances around the discontent in Phoenix are really interesting because essentially they were tanking last year. Right. And, and right. That's, that, that, that is no trade secret. And, you know, they there is some it is a matter of debate to what extent Eric Bledsoe was not 100 percent at the time when he was asked by the team or not asked by the team, told by the team. Uh, that he would not be playing so that they could develop younger players, which by the way is, is, is a, is the prerogative of a team. If they want to see distribute minutes to guys that have a future with the franchise, you know, so be it. But at the same time, one can't, one has to acknowledge that there's a consequence to that. Like that doesn't come without a trade off. And the trade off is, is you have to ask a player in his prime who is capable of playing not to play. And, you know, a, a player who, by the way, is like every player is always playing for his next contract and, and you know, has essentially dedicated a life to you know, cultivating the skills and the abilities to play professional level basketball in his prime years and is basically being not allowed to do that. And, um, you know, and, and there I think lies the seeds of the discontent. And, you know, again, no one knows to what extent he was injured, but but it's debatable from an advocacy standpoint. I mean, where are you on this?
0: You know, listen, the the players who want to be traded, um, you know, I think, you know, have sort of an obligation to the the team that they signed a contract with and to themselves to give it the good college try and to try to uh, maintain their commitment. But if they know, and remember, sports is just so much about psychology. If you know that you're not going to be able to exist there and to thrive, I think you should be able to ask uh, for sort of the freedom to to get out of that and change situations. I think the mistake people make is going public with it. And then your trade value is diminished and everybody knows that it's a, um, you know, buyer's market and you're forced into less options and you end up there longer. But if you can navigate it and use diplomacy and get out of it, then, then so be it. And, you know, it was all the things that you mentioned, but I also think, you know, they weren't winning and that's frustrating for a guy that won in college and has won before and, you know, plays as hard as he has traditionally. And I'm sure that he's excited. This sort of brings up a broader question that I'd love to pick your brain about,
1: which is that fans have such a peculiar relationship with athletes. And largely there's, there's a degree of wish fulfillment, right? Like pro athletes are, have the jobs that pretty much the every person would like to have. I mean, what what is cooler than playing a game for a living? Um, These posters are on our wall as kids or for that matter, even some adults. I mean, the jerseys are worn recreationally like to the park. Uh, They are professional athletes. They're a very specific place in public lore. It's not just in this country, all over the world. And yet. It seems like fans have certain demands and certain expectations. Uh, they're very quick to call athletes malcontents or ingrates. I mean, the president of the United States essentially, you know, you know suggested that if a you know a player should consider himself lucky and fortunate, um, you know, to to be where they are, not as a product of their hard work or anything else, but because. As if they were sort of knighted for this, and and owed a debt of gratitude for it. And why does that relationship exist? Why is it so peculiar? Why is it so difficult for, um, you know, a, a large swath of the public, and maybe rightly so, to 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 understand that, hey, no, actually as you said earlier you know the the day is too busy or the or the season is too busy uh, that they, they they are probably overworked i mean why why is this craft in this trade treated so much differently is so exceptional relative to everything else
0: yeah i mean so i think part of it is that it's a little lonely at the top and everybody sees the glitter and the you know, the champagne and all the positives. And it's, you know, an awesome thing to be an NBA player. I mean, to be one of the 450 people who can play professional basketball, you know, is incredible. But it can be lonely um, because of all the difficulties interacting and going out and having people that you connect with on your same level. You know, it's lonely at the top uh, for anybody that's successful or at least extremely successful in whatever they do. And so, you know, I think people have to realize that, it's kind of psychologically difficult to be a famous person and to, be, and to be at the top and to be a touch lonely. And so you're watching them through every contour of their emotion at times. And if you did that to anybody and you saw how the sausage was made, there would be moments in which you could nitpick or second guess. Um, but for most people, you get to see uh, only the finished product or only when they do have to appear in public or, or give a speech at a meeting or whatever. Um, you know, the other thing is, I think we get confused about what we say when we say that they should just be thankful or they are fortunate or sure they should be thankful and they should be fortunate just the way anyone who's succeeded, you know, if you're the top podcast host, you know, you got to be pretty happy, but you should, you should feel a moment of that and you should remind yourself that you, you know, life could be a lot worse, but that doesn't mean you're not an individual who has every right and the pursuit of happiness as everybody else. And so I think we, we, we note that they should feel fortunate, but we should note it and move past it because, okay, they do feel fortunate. I think they all pretty much to a man like being NBA players, but that doesn't mean they're not allowed to want to play in L.A. and pursue other dreams or do whatever the heck they want. And so, you know, I,
1: I think there's something else, though. I, I do think the public sees sports as a civic trust, and, 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 and if you extend the metaphor, athletes are public, public employees. Right, like there's a reason it's called the Boston Celtics, the 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 Philadelphia Seventy Sixers, the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, th- this notion that the team, in some ways, belongs to the city. There, there's going to be a parade if they win, and 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 by extension, you know, they they, they sort of are public employees. They're they're public servants in some respects. And uh, I think, to the perception of the fan, I'm I'm not I'm not representing this as my own belief. I'm just saying I think this is this is a certain representation. Um, and, and I, and as such, it, it goes back to kind of when you see a player at the club, like I think fans feel like, um, that, that they'd have a certain sense of, I don't want to say ownership, but, but an ownership over the enterprise that is the Boston Celtics or the New York Knicks or the Los Angeles Lakers or the Denver Nuggets, right? It, it, because it is this public utility. It is this, this public trust. I mean, hell we finance the stadiums and the arenas themselves, right? I mean, like, truly, the, the the public does outlay a certain amount of resources for this stuff. And therefore, I think that sometimes the fan feels as if, uh, as a result, they, 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 they can make certain dictations that they might not otherwise for Alex Spiro attorney.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, the geographical, uh, you know, battles between cities and all of that, Um, is a positive thing, right, for the league. And I think, you know, going back through time, people like to get together in groups and fight with other people, even if just through the metaphor of sports. So I, I totally get that, and it's an important part. And you're right that these cities rely on these teams and everything else. But I think that then the answer is if the team gets ripped away from you, right, if the supersonics leave, you can feel that the team has abandoned you. But the players... They switch teams, and sometimes it's, it's, it's them, and when they do it, it's their pursuit of free will, and sometimes it's the uh, organization that pushes away from a player, and then it's their free will. And so, I think sort of just intellectually to me, it's only when the team is is taken from a city that the city should, should feel uh, uh, that they have been taken from, not an individual player's movement.
1: What's going to happen to you the know?
0: NBA? It's going to keep getting bigger and better and
1: More global. You think it's going to continue to make this much money? Yeah. And then some. And do you think that the younger... I mean, here's one other question I had, actually, which is, um, are younger players different than older players? Are you finding that the players you represent under the age of 24 are sort of socialized differently than those over... 30 and is that just a generational thing? Is that very particular to this moment in time?
0: I think that's a development thing. I don't think it's a generational thing. I think, you know, these guys go from middle school to being raced into high school to being raced into college for college that lasts for eight months, six of which is playing basketball around the clock into the league. And, you know, it it all happens so fast, you don't even know where you've landed. And so, you know, when you socialize with, advise, you know, the, the younger players by and large, um, you know, are still getting, getting their sea legs and the older players who have sort of been through a cycle of this, who have seen their first contract come and go and learn the business of that and have had to change teams and move to a new city. You know, like when when most folks go to college and they like learn. Okay, what's it like being in a new place for four years without the stability of, you know, if you've been whisked through your adolescence and early twenties like that, you've never even felt what it is like to stabilize as an adult in a new place. So the 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 players that have come up through and had at least one contract and changed teams once and whatnot tend to be you know, a little bit more active in, you know, how they want you to uh, be an advisor, what they want to do, what they want to do after basketball and outside of basketball and how they want to be perceived. And, you know, the the, the, the younger players are still figuring that out, by and large.
1: Who's the coolest guy you know in the league, personally?
0: The coolest? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I got to say Chris Copeland, or Chris is going to be very upset so cope is the, you know is, there, is a the lot coolest. of these guys are cool are cool in different ways. some guys you know you look up to uh in in sort of how they've been able to turn themselves um into businessmen and the respect that they command around the league um you know a guy like Mello. um you know, and then other guys are so true to themselves, like a guy like Demarcus. That it's cool in and of itself because he's his own man and, and he doesn't need anybody to, to tell him sort of how to be himself.
1: I think DeMarcus is the most interesting guy in the league. And when I reported that story last year, I, it is, it is true. It's one of those, it's almost like sort of this great stage drama where you can't decide if you like the character or don't like the character. Um, because every time you learn something reprehensible, five minutes later you hear something absolutely commendable. Uh, and the best kind of commendable, like like this good deed that that he did, and and you know purposely tried to keep quiet, or uh, and then you hear about just some just terrible behavior in practice or whatever, and and I um, I I think what what I so respect about him is just how brutally honest he was. Even I, I haven't dealt with a player that specifically honest. In, in, in listen, so, listen, I'm in a DeMarcus so
0: fan. I'm a DeMarcus fan. I'm on DeMarcus Mountain. I don't know what DeMarcus is, a mountain maybe. But uh, you know, those things that people point to as indiscretions are so minor and insignificant over the course of time to how big his generosity and heart are and the things that he does on the positive that they pale in comparison and they're a distraction and they'll end up being a remnant of a younger time. And I think the fact that he, he he is honest to himself and sort of charges ahead is is a better indicator of of how he will continue to be in the
1: league and moving forward. It's going to be very interesting when, when he's up. Um, it, that's going to be a really interesting acquisition for somebody. Because yeah, the Wizards. Yeah, it's going to be. Do
0: I mean, you be think big, it's going to be the Wizards? Also going to be. A,
1: I think because he's gonna, in my opinion, he's gonna leave New Orleans. I just don't think that's a necessarily winning situation. And you know, there's talk about Los Angeles. There's talk about Washington for obvious reasons. And John Walton's also, you know, there's a pretty decent core there. Um, but I, I, I have this inkling and kind of hope that the next place he goes is going to be kind of the magic bullet. That it might be fertile ground for him to prosper. As as a player, as a person. You know, deep into the playoffs, the talent is so he is. I I doesn't sound crazy in a a league with like Giannis and LeBron and everything else. DeMarcus is actually my current favorite player to watch Um, just because it so defies perception. Um, Like just the mobility, just the skill set, everything else about it. I just have fun watching DeMarcus Cousins play basketball, which is unusual because big men aren't typically fun to watch. You know, they're inspiring or they're mechanical like Duncan or Hakeem was graceful, but it wasn't like goody, 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 I'm gonna watch Hakeem. It was just it was Hakeem. And DeMarcus to me, it, just the collection of skills. And by the way, like the countenances and the expressions and everything else that goes with a DeMarcus performance that he's this close to maybe combusting, right there with 38 points, and he still might melt down. It, um and, and the suspense that comes with just that. But it, it's. I think he's my favorite player from a standpoint of just complexity, surprise, combustibility, everything else.
0: Yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome. It's like he's playing pickup, and even some of the best players are war, war, you know worrying and wondering whether they should drop step or, or you know force the guy left. He's just playing pickup out there, and he's yeah. he's you know really himself, and he's unbelievably talented. But I also know talented, thoughtful men in the league.
1: Who 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 will tell you that? I I pray that you never have to work with someone in your office like Demarcus cousin in my office. So it, it's just such a contradiction, and there's so which is what makes kind of storytelling and and human beings great, right? Like it is complicated. I mean, you can simultaneously respect and loathe and honor and and assail and and all those things.
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah, I, I hear that, and obviously I've heard that sentiment, but that may come from a place of uh misunderstanding um uh, more than anything but it is what it is alex i appreciate you joining us thanks for having me it's always fun thanks for coming on all right looking forward to uh you know the power coming back to the east blood so that's big and uh you know another Celtic banner this year probably
1: perhaps i'll see you in boston
0: in june